And welcome back to another episode of the Good Buddy Sports Bar. This week you got Skinny Burt and AP. What's going on? Not much, man. Pretty jacked up for Ryder Cup this weekend. So I know we kind of missed a little bit last week, but I'm going to get come in hot and heavy this week with Ryder Cup talk. I know you want to talk about the Solheim Cup a little bit, so let's get after it. Naturally, you always want to talk about your gambling wins. You don't want to talk about the losses, though. This is true. Yeah, I ended up, uh, I was just saying this to you in our pre-meeting here, but wasn't planning on getting too invested in the Solheim Cup. Was kind of keeping an eye on it uh, Friday, Saturday, a little bit just to see what was going on. And then all of a sudden, with how close it was on Sunday, I couldn't help but put a couple of bucks down. Um, put a 10 spot on Europe to win and then a 10 spot on the tie as the tide was kind of shifting away from Europe towards the U.S. as everybody was around in the back nine and ended up taking home that tie bet. So won a nice little bet there for the weekend. And I think I'm going to bet on the Europeans to take it straight up this week. Um, got a couple extra bucks in the account. So I think that's where I'm going with it. I think that's a good call for this week. I mean, you heard my opinion on what I think the score is going to be on the last one. So I would say that's a fair bet. So you had them, you had the euros winning 16, 12 or was it 17, 11? Yeah. Okay. 17, 11. That's a pretty aggressive play after like after sifting through the rosters. No, and that's fair after sifting through the rosters and spending some more time thinking about what the matchups are going to be how top heavy I think the Euros are right now. I think it's going to be closer than I had originally thought. I think I was at like a 15-13 or 16-12 number. I think like 15-13 is going to be right about where I land um, just based upon what I've looked at over the last couple of weeks as far as the teams are concerned. But to kind of wrap up things for the Solheim Cup, great weekend for the women's game. I know that uh, Stacey Lewis had been trying to get up on the soapbox, say they should be doing some advertising jointly with the Ryder Cup. I think that the Solheim Cup stood up by itself with how good the golf was. And if you made that a stroke play event, I don't think it would have been nearly as good. And luckily the Solheim and the Ryder Cup are both match play. And it's the most interesting type of golf out there. Everybody can follow it, whether or not you follow golf. Um, It creates a great atmosphere from a team perspective. Um, I just thought overall, every shot means something. We saw that on Friday with Lexi um, hitting that shank chip on 18 that could have tied the match or at least um, given them an opportunity for a putt to tie the match and they end up losing that match which kind of turned the tide for the Euros going into Saturday they were down for nothing coming out of the Friday morning session that was I think foursomes Um, so the alternate shot ended up coming back being down 5-3 going into day two. But just overall, I thought it was able to stand by itself and a great comeback on the Sunday for the Euros. And I know you didn't watch much of it, F at all. But uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, I was out and about all weekend. (laughs) I didn't get a chance to sit down and watch it. But yeah, I think it, you know, the, the joint advertising side of things, I think that 
to your point, I saw a bunch of buzz. A lot of what I saw was just on social media and it was a lot more than I had expected to see um, regarding the Solheim Cup. So that's obviously, you know, a positive. Yeah. But yeah, I I, I can't pretend to say I watched (laughs) a bunch of it. Which is fair. I saw like Lexi's chip, some other unbelievable shots, things like that, but nothing in too much detail. Yeah, um, it's kind of cool too. Just seeing some of the uh, the players and how they were able to come from like being the 120th ranked player in the world, upsetting some of the high uh, highly ranked Americans. Um, I'm just trying to get it up here, but Saganda from Spain ended up clinching the winning point for the Euros. She was down early in that match. She actually had a shank on. 15, put it way up into the toolies on the right, was dicking around with her ball, um, ended up picking it up, lost that hole, goes over to 16, and it was her match versus Nelly Corda, who was the number one player in the world, has now dropped down to number three in the world. But again, like I don't even think that Saganda's in the top 50 right now. She ends up going toe-to-toe with Nelly. Nelly on 16 hits it to about seven feet above the hole, has a little bit of a sliding putt left to right. Sagana goes out there and hits it to three feet just to the right of the hole. Nelly completely leaves the putter face open on 16, misses that putt to um, get a chance to tie the hole. Sagana makes a putt, followed by 17, which was a par three. Um, They had the pin tucked right behind the bunker. Um, Nelly flared it out to the left or pulled it out to the left. Saganda hits it again to about five feet, makes the birdie putt to secure the match for the Euros. And then there was another match out there, and I got to remember her name. Caroline Hebwall, 121st ranked player in the world, and she was down three with six holes to play. Ends up winning two up. So from three back to two up and wins it on 18. Just it was a great story again. Um, some lower ranked players there for the Euros, but it just showed a great deal of fight and heart and how match play can be the great equalizer. Um, you can throw away a couple of holes, but you can still win it by going after birdies and being aggressive. I mean, you read my mind with that last statement. I think it, you know, you see it, you saw it at the Solheim Cup. You also see it like in the US amateur where there's guys that are ranked way lower and you see them playing on Sunday because of how match play gives you that ability to, to kind of make a couple mistakes, but then come back and, and you know, totally redeem yourself. And we, you and I harp on match play constantly on this pod. And, and I think it's, you know, last weekend was a great example of it. The, the U S amateur is a great example of it. It just makes for more entertaining golf. Yes. And I know from an advertising perspective, it's a little tough sometimes because you're not going to send the match to 18 holes and they like to sell a lot of, corporate suites on the 18th hole and usually make it more of a stadium there. But if you just rejig some of your suites to like holes 12 to 16, that's where a bulk of the action is happening in match play. So just switch it up a little bit or have holes where you can see multiple holes from um, and that kind of alleviates some of it. Um, And I think we going back to what we were talking about for the tour championship. If you continue having multiple matches on the course all the way out through Sunday, you can still have the ability to have a playoff system with match play, even uh, without getting rid of all the other golfers and all the other matches going on on the course. So you still have the advertising and marketing opportunities, and people will tune in to watch a bunch of match play. Well, I, I 
I was thinking of this thing the other day, you know, or the other day. And then when you, when you laid out kind of how the European team in the Solheim cup is, they're like low ranked because there's so many players from elsewhere in the world. Right. And I feel like what they should do is another idea for engagement is take like the top 24 players in the world rankings, whenever they get those sorted back out. So they're accurate again, just take the top 24, have a draft for, to pick teams and then have a four day tournament of those two teams going at it, Ryder cup or Solheim cup style, but don't have any allegiances to countries or continents or anything. So you end up, you know, with the top guys or the top girls in team match play, you know, once every six months. Yeah, I think having the teams going out gives you the opportunity to have multiple matches. Again, I love it because you're tied to the team. You don't want to let people down as much as golf has been such an individualistic sport for all these years. They got to find ways to spruce it up a little bit. A, love match play. B, love the team aspect. So love that idea. And you can also play it down to like, here is your true one versus two or one on the PGA Tour versus one on the Live Tour to see who is truly the number one player in the world at that given time. Right, so right. Some fun stuff. Or even if you do don't have it split out by tours, right? Like you just take, let's say you take the top 30 male golfers on earth, wherever they're from, regardless of country, and you essentially pick teams like in gym class. And then those two teams go out and battle for four or five days. You got to wonder if that's what they're going to be like doing with be... this like overarching corporation, the corporation that they're calling it, um, that overarches yeah. all golf, if they're going to be doing something like that. Anyways. I'd watch that because I think it's like watching a normal golf tournament. Like we watch basketball and like, yeah, okay, that team's better than that team. But the thing that gets everyone's attention is like a big shot or a big dunk or, you know, a ridiculous play. And the match play in that team style where you're, you know, you're in a pairing against another pairing that allows for that unreal moment to happen because someone's going to take a risk they wouldn't normally take um, if they're playing in a shot play or in, in a shot play tournament. Ryder Cup Poulter. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And that's why he was so great. Like he, in a regular tournament, blow up for a couple of holes, but he was pretty good the rest of the time and his mentality was i just got to beat the guy next to me so i don't care if i blow up on a hole we'll go to the next hole do it all over again and see who's better on that hole yeah exactly and i think there's you know uh we saw at pebble with with the ladies you know blasting driver from under the tree on 18 like that's something that you pull in or sorry uh three wood from under the tree that's something you pull in in match play you don't typically see it in in a shot play tournament um So encouraging that, encouraging these unreal golfers to, you know, take a little bit more risk, I think would be a great way to engage the casual fan. And again, I watch a lot of golf. I watch college golf, am golf, almost all types of golf. I wasn't planning to be engaged, like I said, but for two and a half hours on Sunday, I was fully engaged, partially because I had some money riding on it. But the other part was how close it was and how fun it is to watch match play. I'll kind of watch anything when it comes to match play. And I think it's the best form of golf when you're setting up a tournament. So anybody out there trying to set up a tournament, make it a match play tournament. More fun for those involved and um, more fun for those watching, gambling on it, all the rest. So before we get to the Ryder Cup preview, there is three things I wanted to lay out uh, before we move on from the Solheim Cup. 
two not so good and then one that we can have a bit of a discussion around that also leads into the Ryder Cup. So I was seeing some things on Twitter about the conditions for the spectators at the Solheim Cup and it's really unfortunate some of the stuff that I was seeing when it came to that. It almost felt like they weren't taking the Solheim Cup seriously. I don't know if it was the vendors or it was the committee that plans the Solheim Cup, but I was hearing of shortages of food, buses not running, and not getting spectators out to the course because I guess it was a tough place to get to. They had one sole um, company that was running cabs between the closest city and the golf course. It wasn't working like just an absolute disgrace on that side of things. Very unfortunate to hear they sold like a hundred thousand tickets and it sounded like they planned for 10,000 people to be there. So I will just say, step your damn game up and take it seriously in the future because it is a great event and people are attending Two goes back to what we talked about a little bit with the USAM and match play. Um, I think that this Solheim Cup could have been completely changed. Um, Allison Corpus gave a four-foot putt to tie the hole on 18. With how many four-footers I saw missed on Sunday alone, that should have never happened. So it goes back to the decision-making conversation that we had during the USAM. In the throes of competition, you got to make your opponent put everything out, especially in that situation when the match is as close as it was. Um, Very unfortunate to see, which leads into the last point, which I think we can talk about a little bit here is the Solheim Cup, similar to the Ryder Cup, whoever currently holds the cup only has to get to 14 points, which is a tie technically, but it goes back to the reigning champ. So that was a big decision by Corpus to give that putt, um, which could have actually swung the whole thing in the Americans' favor. So I'll pause there and say, what are your thoughts on the tie? Should it go back to the country that currently holds it, or should there be a one-hole playoff? I think you have to beat the champ to become the champ so a tie you didn't beat the champ so it's similar to a split decision in boxing and ufc yeah to an extent i just think if you want to take the belt you have to beat the person with it you don't get to tie for it i think i disagree with ties in professional sports in general um but when there is something on the line like the the Solheim Cup or the Ryder Cup, I think to say that you got it, you have to actually beat the champion. You have to go out there and steal it. Yep. You gotta go take it from him. It's funny because it's just like the things I've seen on social media are kind of funny because they're like, oh, you should give the holder of the cup a half point advantage to start the whole thing. And I'm like, That's just accounting. Like it doesn't change anything. You're still technically ending up in a tie. So it doesn't really matter. Yeah. No, I I think you're right. I think, you know, there's, it doesn't matter how you word it or position it or any of that. Ultimately beat the champ to become the champ. Otherwise you're, you're not, you're not, you didn't win. Mm -hmm. You don't get the trophy. You're done. You had the opportunity through how many different matches and games and all of that to do what you needed to do. If you couldn't do it and you couldn't beat them, you don't get to win. You don't get another opportunity to try and break the tie. That's where I stand too. Like 
you got to go out there, physically take it from them. You got to win that extra half point. And that's why I think some of the decisions down the stretch, you got to be thinking about what's the bigger picture here. Um, so making them put almost everything out there on Sunday is what you got to do. Be a little bit more cutthroat. Yep. Well, I think the, that kind of ties us into the, the other thing that I think is super unique, especially when it comes to the Ryder Cup, is that the host, the host, nation gets to set the course up and i love that idea and i know you might differ on this opinion but i love that idea and i think it's really interesting i learned this when i was watching you know some of the videos on this coming Ryder cup but the the dp world tour when courses apply to be a host Ryder cup venue they also have to agree to host a dp world event within i think it's three years of, or two years of the Ryder cup and what that does is it allows the European team to gain all of the data from that tournament about where people hit it, general approach shots, dangerous spots to miss it, all of that. So they can then take that and set the course up in their favor. Yeah, and vice versa. I think the PGA Tour probably has similar analytics. The part that I didn't like, and you sent me over the video, and I think we're going to try and put it in the show notes so that folks have reference to what we're talking about, because it was an interesting piece to see how they go about setting up the course. And they showed the 2018 um, setup at Le Golf National in Paris and how they were able to figure out that the Americans, when they missed, they were 30 feet further off their target line or off the fairway line. So they actually backed up the crowds an extra like 30 feet, I believe it was, in order to have the grass not be trampled down so they wouldn't get nice lies over in the rough. They would get these matted down heavy lies that were tough to get out of. Um, the part that I don't That's like. That's awesome. Yeah, it is. But the part that I don't like is now all of a sudden your key player is Francesco Molinari and his stats and how they set up the course as opposed to allowing the guys to go out there and play. I know you want to give yourself an advantage on home soil and that's how they choose their courses in the u.s to a similar extent like they want a bomber's paradise but it just to me the way that was laid out almost seemed like you're you're taking it away from the players before the event even starts well i don't know if you're taking it away from the players i think you're you're setting a course up and then you're picking your team based on the course that they're going to have to play and obviously there's people who automatically qualify but you know, to your point, the U.S. side, they set it up where they can bomb it and it's not necessarily penal. Whereas the European players, they're a lot more of a, you know, finesse, work your way around. And I don't see an issue with that. I think, you know, it's home field advantage like in every other sport. It's like we're not going to tell the Seattle Seahawks 12th man to keep it down so the <laughs> team they're playing can hear. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like the Yankees setting up their stadium when they built the new one to have the short porch over in right field, and that's just where they bomb it to, and they score 10 runs and beat you every night. Yeah, I mean, it's it's your advantage. The next time you play in this tournament, you're going to be at a disadvantage because the other you're going to be playing someone else's barn. Yeah, um, and that kind of leads us into the course setup. Um, watch the flyovers a couple of times of Marco Simone just to get a better feel for what the course is going to play like, what it's going to look like. And then listening to a bunch of interviews with players sounds like um, from all accounts, they've grown up the rough. They got this like six inch 
they're calling it California Muni rough that's got many different types of grass growing. So it's going to be this thick stuff. You don't know if you're going to get a flyer. You don't know if you're going to get a matted down lie. Like it's going to be interesting to see some of the stuff that they get. The other thing that I drew away just from the natural course setup is everything pinches in between 290 and 320 yards, whether it be bunkers, rough comes in and the landing go landing zones go from like 50 yards wide down to 20 yards in all those areas. So it's really going to put an emphasis, not even so much on the wedge game. It's going to put an emphasis on who can hit their five, six, seven irons, the most accurate all week. Yeah. Well, I think it's not like, you know, we, we talked when we, after we watched the British open, we talked about the bunkers and how you might as well treat them like a water hazard. And, you know, Brian Harmon did an awesome job of not hitting it in any of the bunkers and selecting his clubs appropriately. So, uh, you know, that course in, in Italy is just set up so that there's specific areas that you don't want to hit it. And unfortunately, if you, if you can't hit driver, you're going to have to hit something else or you can just risk it. So I, I don't, I don't understand. I don't necessarily see it as any different than, you know, any other course that gets set up to be target golf. Mm-hmm. Um, that rough is, is unbelievable. I watched the Peter Finch video. I watched the Rick Shields one. You know, it's, I'm excited to see it. I, I'm a firm believer that we need to make this hard on these guys and see how they do because mm-hmm. the rest of us go out and play golf and we hate our lives a lot of it. <laughs> And let's get them set up. <laughs> let's get them set up in a tournament where if you miss, it's penal. I want you to go out there and be frustrated for four hours. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you know what? You should probably have to pay the three hundred dollars to go play that course too. <laughs> Just and, add and insult buy the to injury. Yeah. One. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, I mean, I, I the course looks beautiful. I love how they have it set up. I think it's exactly the way that I was expecting them to have it set up where, you know, it's going to be either risk reward or accuracy is going to win. Um, and I think that bodes well for the for the European team like we expected it to. Um, but, you know, the American team and a lot of the guys on there are no slouches when it comes to their iron game. You know, whether you're talking about Shoffley or Cantlay or Morikawa, you know, they, they're damn good when it comes to, you know, mid approach shots so it'll just be them how they adjust to not hitting driver everywhere yeah and i was listening to the paulson brothers inside the ropes the one day and they didn't give any stats but i think it's just a mental approach that professionals have nowadays with how good the driver technology is and how they can pretty much place their drivers wherever they want to a certain extent um, they were talking about layups and professionals. They're joking about how poorly pros hit layup shots, whether it be an iron or a three wood. They just said they're terrible at it because they aren't used to that. And then they start guiding the ball. Um, so that kind of can get into your head if you're playing a course like that. So instead of having a wedge out of this rough, that's going to be tough to judge. Now, all of a sudden, you may have a four iron or a seven iron out of this rough. And you don't know how to approach it, so it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how well both sides play when it comes to um, their layup shots um, on some of these par fours. Another thing that I found interesting with the course setup, and it's just the way that the course is made. Three of the four par fives have water that come into play on the left side of the green, whether it be protecting or just beside it. So that will be interesting to keep an eye on. And the other par five, so number 12, has OB down the whole right side. Um, 
so those tee shots could be dealing with some hairiness on the right side. I cannot wait to watch that. I'm so stoked to watch how they work their way around the course and club selection and, and all that. I think it's, yeah, I'm stoked. Yeah, and especially when you're in a team format, um, we'll, I'll, I'll lay that out for the listeners. So the scheduling that we have, and again, going back to being able to choose which matches go out when. So in the morning schedule on the first day, they have foursomes going out, otherwise known as alternate shot. And then in the afternoon, they got the four ball match, which is the best ball. Um, so part of the reason for that is the Europeans feel like they're more accurate. They're a better team. They can play together in that format a little bit better than the Americans. So they want to send the Americans out in something where they aren't as familiar. They may feel like fish out of water for that morning matchup and then four ball in the afternoon. Um, and usually we see it vice versa when we're in the U.S. Um, they'll go with the four ball matchups. So then that way they can bomb away and then go into the foursomes after they've kind of gotten warmed up. Um, so just another home field advantage thing that they're playing with. Um, to hopefully get off to a good start. I will say in the Solheim Cup, the Europeans did the same thing and they didn't get off to a good start. They ended up getting skunked in the first set of matches. So. Yeah, I mean, it, it It all comes down to how you want that tournament set up and, and what you're going to do with your pairings in that. I mean, mm -hmm. I went through and like put together what I thought pairings would be. I didn't really do it for each of the different um, games. I figured, you know, I kind of put it together like if you're going to run with the same pairing for each of the different team games. This is this is the way I, I would have put it together or I think would work well, but... Okay, so I think this is a be, good transition. There, there could be some switch-ups too, right? Yeah, I think this is a good transition because I wanted us to chat about who we thought was going to go off in the, I guess, first session um, or who we thought the pairings were going to be for the Americans and the Euros. So I'll throw it out to you. Who do you yeah. want to take, the Americans or the Euros? Um, I don't care either way, man. You go first. Okay. You pick what you want. Okay. I'll go with the Europeans because I spent a little bit of time on both, but uh, I think the Americans are a little bit more straightforward. Um, so I see some of the pairings being created based upon nationality to a certain extent. Um, so I see a Hatton and Rose going out. I could see them out in an alternate shot. Um, this one isn't... Um, necessarily a national pairing but rory and aberg i think they played quite a bit over the last few weeks i think aberg's able to handle the pressure i think he enjoys playing with rory so i could see those two going out hovland and fleetwood i think that would be a fun matchup for those two guys to go out together um just from how much of a kid hovland is Tommy feeds off of that fun energy. Maybe they can catch lightning in a bottle similar to Francesco and Tommy did a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And then I saw maybe a fiery matchup with Rom and Lowry. So those were my Ooh, four pairings I that I say, I thought you were going to say Rom and Hatton. Well, no, I see Lowry and Rom going out maybe. Um, it could be a Rom yeah. and instead of Lowry, maybe a Fleet, um, Fitzy matchup just to have kind of two differing games there. But uh, what are your thoughts? Who do you see going out for the Euros? Fleetwood and Lowry together. Okay. Um, 
I had Rory and Hovland. Okay. I mean, they're both excellent all around. And if you're going out early, um, that's probably what you want. Um, I had Rose and Hoygaard. Ooh. Or Rose and Aberg. You get like one of the young guns out there who's probably playing a bit of a more risk-reward game. And then you get Rosie with them who's the pro of grinding it out. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think a Fitzy McIntyre combo would be good um it's gonna be a pretty boring one but mcintyre can absolutely putt with the with like the top tier of them all and fitzy's long iron mid to long iron game is bang on yeah so you like you get a combo of that um especially on on you know these these holes that aren't really rewarding the long ball Mm-hmm. As much as your approach and getting on the green, I think having a Fitzy McIntyre combo there, you know, they're both going to find the fairway with three wood or a soft driver or an iron or whatever. And then you're going to have, you know, one of those two guys hitting it into the green and one of those two guys putting. Yeah. It's interesting because they got four reachable par fours depending upon where they play the tees. So it could be two or yeah. it could be four. Um, and I'm guessing in that early session they're probably only going to have two that are reachable just because it doesn't set up to to play well for alternate alternate shot they may go to that for the foursomes or the four ball in the afternoon um it's interesting because if they go the route that you're looking at you end up playing mcintyre and hoigard or aberg so two maybe three of the rookies going out there in the opening matches and I didn't yep. have some of those guys in. Like I had Aberg in there because I think he could fit well with any of the top guys. So I could see him going out there. I just don't know how comfortable they're going to feel with like a McIntyre or Hoygaard going out there early. So I guess yeah. my one that I well, have I chalked up is Aberg right now just with what he's been able to do the last month or so. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree with you. I do like your Rory and Hovland pairing though. I think that one makes a lot of sense. I mean, that one, that one I was looking at like every, like just stick them together for the whole time. Yeah. And like just get out there and set the pace. I had Rom and Hatton as a pairing too. I could see them going off in the afternoon together. Yeah. Like just be all piss and vinegar fired up. And I think that would definitely get the crowd into it too. No, I like that one. I was trying to figure out a way to like match up the top guys with some good vets to go out there early and I see that being the recipe. I don't like, I think the U S has some of those pre-made teams a little bit more than the euros do right now. For sure. Putting like pairings together for the U S team was so easy. Yeah. um, Comparatively. Mm -hmm. But I think that they're the thing I wouldn't be surprised with from the European side is like them not sticking with the same pairings for each of the different matches. Like, you know, you send Rom, Rom and Hatton out in one of the sessions, but then you switch it and you've got like, like you said, like a Rom and someone else in another session. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, I think the U S historically has been a lot more inclined to stick with their pairings within their little groups. Yeah. They got their little clicks that they've created. So transition over to the american side who do you got um for that um i think you got scotty and burns going out Mm -hmm. together they're boys played countless amounts of golf together i think that's a good um pairing um you got spieth and thomas 
I think that goes without saying. Mm-hmm. Um, Shoffley and Cantley, I had it down, and then I was reading the Golf Digest thing today, and they were calling them like the ideal tag team. Like mm-hmm. they they ranked the top twenty four players, and they had they had Shoffley and Cantley as six and seven or seven and six, um, and they called them the tag team champions. I think their games <laughs> are just so well suited for for these different um, formats in this course. They stripe the ball. They hit it really well with their irons. They're all they're both good around the greens. And then this is my my wild card pairing. Okay. Kepka and Harmon. Okay. That's an interesting one. Elaborate. And here's why. Okay. I think that well, Brian Harmon has showed his ability to play the course as it's set up. Not hit it where he doesn't want to hit it. Get it on the green. Bang down everything within 40 feet. And he's arguably like the most, I don't want to say the most, but he is an ideal player for this course. It's not overly long. You have to plod your way around. You have to be able to putt, mm-hmm. right? And then you got Kepka, who can bomb it if he needs to, but he rises to the occasion in big moments. And if you put him in a situation, especially if it's like, you know, best ball side of it, you give him the ability playing with Harmon to take some risks and hit the shots, and he loves that moment. And, oh, by the way, he can putt. Yeah. So I think that the that, that Kepka-Harmon pairing... I would love to see it. And I think that those two would like get along well on the course. It's funny you say that because I had the same thoughts go through my mind about that pairing. The one thing that held me back was I don't think Harmon plays at a pace that Brooks would necessarily love. And that was the only reason why I didn't have them out there together. Um, All your points are valid. That you laid out there, I think it frees. But I, I don't. I, I think, think Brooks's pace, his issues with pace, are very much in a shot play tournament. Mm-hmm. Whereas this one is more of a team situation and like working through it with your partner. I don't think he would have that same issue that he has when he's playing. You know, to shoot the lowest score. Yeah. So I like. I get those pairings. I had a couple of different ones. So I had Brooks going out with Ricky as a different one. I think the other three are yep. kind of straightforward. Like um, to your point, Cantlay and Xander make total sense. Both great players individually. They were able to prove it out at Whistling Straits. Spieth and JT, just natural there. They play golf all the time. Familiar with each other's game. Makes sense. I have more Cow and Homa together. For the Cal connection, they played a lot of golf together. Okay, I think that's a good one. I don't have them going out in the first set of groups. I think they'll go out in the afternoon session. And then I had the Brooks and Ricky pairing because I think Brooke and they'll go out in the morning. I think Ricky's big problem is his killer instinct. If you look at his record, he's three, seven, and five. He typically plays to, in essence, not lose. So he has a bunch of ties. So I think pairing him with a Brooks may bring out some of that dog in him that he needs, that push. So I could see them as a pairing. And then I have Wyndham and Harmon together as another pairing. Both guys put the ball really well. Um, Wyndham a little bit longer can get um, a little bit deeper on the track and Harmon can kind of be steady Eddie. But I do like your thoughts on um, a four ball situation with Harmon and Brooksy. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of my the other one I had Ricky with Homa, um, and then I had Morikawa and Clark together. Okay, you know they're both elite ball strikers, 
and I think it that could be an interesting one to watch. And then you and you know you get Clark on the greens and he can roll it with the best of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but maybe think- you know maybe they split up Spieth and Thomas, and you know they put. I could see like a Kepka and JT situation. Yeah, I could see that on day two. But I think you yeah. you run out, especially with how JT's been playing. I think you run out JT and um, and Speed together just to get him going a little bit and um, the familiarity factor. That's that's one of the notes I had. Is like I think one of the things that the Europeans don't do as much as the Americans do. I think the Americans tend to rely or try and get their partners involved more than they should because you're trying to get somebody like engaged and going and you want them to be involved in the decision-making. Whereas I think the Europeans just go ahead and play their game and they don't need the other guy to chip in for like, Hey, what do you see this putt doing? Stuff like that. Um, so I think right. the Americans are going to rely on the guys who are most familiar with each other because then they can come in. If they are talking about a putt, they know what each other does, that sort of stuff. Um, but I think they have a tendency to kind of overcomplicate it and that gets them into trouble. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think that also ties back into the fact that the European team is a bit more of a revolving door of players versus the U.S. team where it always seems like they've got the same guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially right now as they're going through the transition to youth on that European team. Yeah, for sure. And that was another thing that. Yeah, I would to... love to see. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, um, let's say shit hits the fan after day one, and the Europeans are down six two. Who in that locker room is going to be stepping up? to be the leader because in the past they've had a lot of that, whether it be Poulter, um, Sergio, Westwood, um, Paul Casey, they've had all those guys in the team room in the past. And now it's that next generation. Who's going to be the one that steps up and becomes the leader? Because I think sometimes with Rom and Rory, it can almost seem like attacks with their passion. So I'm very interested to see who that leader is going to be. Is it going to be Rosie? Is it going to be Lowry? Who's going to be that guy that steps up and stays the ship for them? I think I think it's going to be Rosie. I think he's he's kind of earned that role. I think he's also one of the guys that would embrace that role. And he seems to be, you know, extremely well respected by everyone, including the Rory's and the Roms and that, that he can take that stance that may oppose one of the big guns um, and it not blow everything up. That's, that's I mean, kind maybe of, maybe it's Fleetwood too. Like I mean, if Fleetwood's going to, if Fleetwood speaks up and that they all respect him so much, he doesn't say much very often. So if he's going to say something like it's probably one of those things you should listen to. Just don't let his caddy get in there. Oh yeah. <laughs> his caddy will speak up in a second. Are you serious? But yeah, like, I don't know. You bring up a good point. It, it, it seems like there's a, a vacuum of leadership there. Um, but I think that's part of the reason, you know, I think Rosie earned it, but I think that was also like a big check mark next to him is the ability to do that. I think that is also probably a reason why Lowry got the nod instead of one of the other guys mm-hmm. um, with his ability and his experience, you know, globally. I think that is another, another reason why he got picked. Yeah. I can't wait. Like, I guess I know, Thursday man. night can't come quick enough for us on the West Coast. It's going to be a 10.30 tip, and I think for the East Coasters, a 1.30 a.m. Friday start. So I can't wait to see what happens, what the pairings are. Um, 
I'm about to lay down my bet. I'm taking the Europeans with a plus 120. And then I'll keep an eye on the live betting to see what goes on and maybe lay a couple extra bucks on there. But looking forward to it. Yeah, man, you have fun betting on that. I'm not going to bet, but I will be watching it. <laughs> I'll put 10 bucks on the 16-12. My ridiculous expectation or prediction of the score um, checks out. After seeing the videos of that course and you know looking at the teams and looking at these pairings and that, I'm not... I'm not uncomfortable with the statement I made. It made me a little bit uneasy as I was going through making the European pairings, seeing to the point that we made earlier where the US, it was very cut and dry, pretty straightforward. I think there's only one or two pairings that may switch up um, within kind of a four-man pod um, for that morning session. The Europeans, you really had to think about what sort of game one guy had versus another guy and like the veterans versus the rookies and stuff like that. So how do you protect some of the rookies in the formats? Um, So that's the only thing that scares me when it comes to the Euros as far as a beatdown is concerned. But I think back to the point that you made and if people watch the video, they may see how they're able to sway the course to their advantage, which is a big piece to winning a Ryder Cup and why they've been so yeah. successful. You know, for interesting years. fact I read today. Yeah, exactly. Interesting fact I read today. You know, everyone talks about Aberg being this young gun. Hoygaard is 18 months younger than Aberg. Yeah. I had no idea. I saw another note. I was like, they should just, they should just wheel out his brother, his, his identical <laughs> brother, just to switch it up so neither of them get tired. Yeah, play all five matches. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, man, I, I'm. This is gonna be great. I'm so excited for it. Yeah, so am I. So we'll uh, we'll wrap it up at that. I think we did a good job breaking down the course, some of the parents that we see, and now it's time to put the peg in the ground and see who the better team is and see who was right and who was wrong. Yeah, unfortunately, we're both on the same side. So yeah. <laughs> We're both going to be abundantly wrong, but <laughs> you, you know I'm going to go nuts if they roll up. If they roll out a Kapka Harmon pairing, I'm going to be going nuts. Yeah, that'll be a, a fun pairing if they can do that. Um, I still think that the the Ricky Brooks one. Hopefully, you can get a little bit of dog out of them, and they can win a match or two. But yep, they should just put Brooks and, and Cantlay together, and, and... <laughs> that goes back to enjoy that one. That goes back to Watson rolling out Tiger and Phil. I don't think that's going to go too well. Yeah, yeah, not ideal. 